0: So, and the other thing about this church, I just want to point out, there there are very few churches that have two expositional sermon series running at the same time. There's very few churches that have enough pastors that can pull that off. You got 1 Corinthians going on and you got Matthew. So that's an embarrassment of riches you have just in the teaching here. I just want to point that out. That doesn't happen in most churches. So, as Pastor Steve said last week, um, I may also offend you. You know, so he, If you were here last week, he made a big point about offending you. Now, I won't be as good at offending you as Pastor Steve was. And there, I got him back for you. He's now offended, so I got <laughs> I got some revenge for you. And also, it has become a tradition for me to poke fun at Pastor Steve during my sermons, and I think the Lord is very pleased with that tradition. It is not contrary to the word. So, okay, I got that out of the way. Now, where have we been in the Gospel of Matthew? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip back to 13. We're not going to read it. Just you know, look at the headings and we can walk back through where we have came from. So as Steve rightly said, the kingdom parables are the pinnacle of the Gospel of Matthew. So when you're at the pinnacle of a mountain, right, what are you going to do? What's the whole point of climbing a mountain to get up to Mount Washington if you're in Pittsburgh? You want to look down and take advantage point. So that's where now we're headed down. And we have to keep looking back to that to see where we're at. So what did we have? We had the discussion of the good and the bad soils, right? Called the parable of the sower, but it's probably better labeled the parable of the soils because it's about the heart condition of those who are hearing the word. We had the weeds, the wheat, the seeds, the the wheat and the wheat, the the parable of the the wheat and the tares. We had the leaven and the yeast and the dough. We talked about the treasures and the pearls. And the nets with good and bad fish in them. So this is, this is all 13, 1 to 52, all those verses. And now we're stepping, now we should have all this imagery in mind as we're moving through the Gospel of Matthew. Don't forget about the soils. Don't forget about the net of the kingdom that's, that's gathering people in. Okay, Have that in your mind as we move forward. Now we're at thirteen fifty-three. So right away we see an example of bad soil. We see an example of shallow or rocky soil, right? All the three bad soils, right? Jesus comes to his hometown and they won't accept his word. They take offense at him. Okay? And this is also Jesus' net. Remember, the net is the message of the kingdom as well as an eschatological prophecy of what's going to happen in the end, but it's also Jesus cast this net of the gospel and it pulls in. And in Jesus' hometown, it pulled in very few. Then in 14, we saw another example of a bad soil. With with who? Herod. So obviously, that's a man with bad soil in his heart. He has John the Baptist imprisoned and beheaded. 14, 13 and following, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. Now, here's where we explicitly have a connection I want to make for our current text. The mention of bread. Because Jesus does what with the bread? He feeds 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes. And we're asking, what's the soil status of the heart of this 5,000? What is their response to Jesus' miracles? Now, it's interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not comment on that. Like, it's interesting. The crowds just eat the food and, and there's no comment on that. But John has an extensive commentary in John chapter 6, if you want to read that later, about the condition of the hearts of those who received the feeding of the 5,000. And what we what we discover is they their soil must be prepared by the drawing of the Father in order for them to come to the Son. Okay, if you want to read that later. Now, 1422, we have the miracle of Jesus walking on water. Okay? And here's the first clear connection to our current text, a very explicit one. And I've been, you know, I follow along on sermon audio. I'm thankful for being able to uh, hear Pastor Steve and Mike and, 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 and Scott and everybody preach. And two sermons ago, he rightly emphasized... When Peter's stepping out of the boat, we're not doing like the word faith teachers do and be like, be like Peter. Step out onto the water. Have enough faith to trust God. No, no, we're talking about what Jesus is doing. And what Jesus does is he labels Peter's faith. And how does he label Peter's faith? Oh, you of little faith. Now I'm sorry. If I took like 10 steps on the water, why are you tell me I got little faith? I just walked on water, man. Yeah, I know I got a little, little shaky toward the end and started sinking, but I walked on the water. Okay, But remember that. Because his faith is going to be compared to this woman's faith. That's my I think there's a contrast here, purposely by Matthew. Because the other thing, too, is, uh, like in Luke twenty-two, twenty-four, 24, the disciples do this all the time. They argue about who's the greatest. And Peter always had the ace in the hole. Like, listen, guys, y'all need to calm down. I walked on water. Did any of you do that? No? Okay, be quiet. That probably ended the argument. It would end it for me. Now, then Jesus, after he walks on the water, he steps in the boat and it says they worshipped him. Proskuneo is the Greek word, which is the word for worship. It's interesting. Jesus has not stopped them from doing that. He has not forbid them from doing that. He allows it to happen. But what's important about this is, why are they worshiping Jesus? Do they really understand what he's come to do yet? Or are they just overawed with his power? And I would submit that is why they are doing it. They still do not understand what Jesus has come to do. And the whole contrast that Matthew's making in this whole section is you have the Jewish people and the disciples who have the Messiah in their midst. And they either the the apostles, they're starting to get it, but they still don't have any clue. We'll see. This is a couple sermons later in Matthew. Peter has no clue what's going on. He confesses him as the Christ, but totally messes it up after that. All these Jews who are supposed to be the chosen people don't see what Jesus is doing. But a Canaanite woman does. That's the whole point. Okay, So why are they worshiping him? What is the nature of the soils in the hearts of the disciples at this time? Does some rocky soil have to be cleared out? Absolutely. Do some vines and thorn bushes have to be ripped out of Peter's heart before he gets it? You better believe it. We're going to get there in a minute. Now the next section, the one uh, Steve preached on last week, about what makes one clean and what makes one unclean. I'm going to go on a little riff about translations real quick. So the word "bread" actually occurs in the Greek there. In chapter 15 verse two, it says, "This question the Pharisees actually ask is, "Why do your disciples eat with hands when, eat, unwashed hands when they eat bread?" And for some reason, the ESV, NIV, they just leave the word out. I don't know why they did that. But I think it's very important that you know that word is there. Okay? Now, easy, you don't have to know Greek to figure that kind of stuff out. And you don't have to abandon your current translation and say, oh, I need the best translation. No. Just go on BibleGateway.com. And it's got this cool feature where you search for a verse, and then you bring the verse up in the translation you want. And then there's a link. Below the verse, it says... See verse in all English translations. It's really cool. And you click that link and it'll give you like every English translation that has ever existed. right in a nice like just right you can scroll and see and, and that's a way to know if you don't learn the original language, but you want to see if there's some significant differences. You just look at all the English translations and if you see a big difference, you're like, why does that one have bread? And the other one doesn't have the word bread. Oh wow. The word bread is in there. And why am I making a big deal about this? Because the, the, the Pharisees are asking about eating bread with unwashed hands. And Jesus is going to bring up the term bread when he's dealing with this woman. And he's going to talk about bread to deal with her. We'll get to that. This is all setting up for, we haven't even got to our text yet. And then Pastor Steve, probably for sake of time, I would assume, did not get to the part where Jesus was talking about what comes out of somebody's heart. And I just want to make a quick comment about that. Okay. So the Pharisees are thinking that what makes somebody unclean is they're not doing the outward ceremonial things very well, which Steve was very good on and teaching us what those were and, and the Corban rule and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus says what? It's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of your heart. Okay? And we're going to see the connection to the text and the sermon title. I'm sorry, I forgot to give the sermon title. There is something that comes out of your mouth that can actually make you clean. And we're going to see what the woman's faith is that makes her clean. But I want to make a point of application. Jesus teaches in 15, 19, and 20, what does he say? He has a whole list of things that come out of the heart. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And that comes out of the nature that's within us. But do you know what we, the culture we swim in, that we live in right now, teaches exactly the opposite. Your problem is your environment. Your problem is your upbringing. Your problem is the way you were raised. Okay, the, the whole social justice movement and all these things, it's all about this, there's all this oppression out there and all this injustice and that's why people act the way they do. Now certainly, does your environment have an impact on how you grow up and are raised? Yeah, we see that with the kids we work with at Sunward. but is it going to help the kids at Sunward? Especially when they go into early adulthood and late adolescent years to say, listen, yeah, you're getting into drugs, you're getting into alcohol, you're getting into risky behaviors. But that's just because of how you were raised. No. You have to say that's, it's got a sinful nature. And it's in your heart that that stuff, those behaviors are coming from your nature. So you need to repent. But our culture, no. We have a diagnosis for every behavior that people do we always blame the outward conditions instead of just saying look we need to repent we need to look into our heart first instead of everything around us don't we do that i do that all the time my first instinct is to blame others right dear yes (laughs) (laughs) my first instinct when i'm called out on some behavior is to say well that's not my fault Right? My intention was this. You just didn't see my intentions in my heart. Okay, well, the intention of my heart is usually not, is usually the problem. But I'm thinking I have a pure heart. Now, to our text. Now we are finally at our text. So, if you have your Bible open to Matthew 15, 21. So let's just walk verse by verse through here, and we'll make some applications. And Jesus left there and went away into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now stop right there. So, this is interesting. I was doing this on the car ride here because I thought, how far is Tyre and Sidon from where Jesus was? 30 miles. It's exactly 30 miles the drive we made to get here today. And imagine walking that. It says it would take 10 hours. I googled it. If you walk 3 miles an hour. 10 hour walk. Just the cultural thing. Just a sociological point that I was thinking of. Like, what a different way you would live if you had to walk everywhere. How much more time would you have to like, enjoy nature and pray to God and converse with fellow disciples and stuff? You have a 10-hour walk with Jesus. That would be cool to walk with Jesus for 10 hours. Like, yeah, we just got a 10-hour walk. Okay. Now we're like, oh my gosh. It's a 45-minute drive. On. We, could all, we complain like Steve said. We, we take things for granted, don't we? Like the invention of the internal combustion engine, how that just revolutionized like everything in the culture. Anyway. So, and the, the Greek word there is they're going away somewhere else, so they're trying to get away. And I'll make a point about this later. That they're they're trying to get away from the crowds, get away from the people. Jesus is always trying to do this, to be alone with his disciples, and it rarely works, by the way. They're rarely ever able to get away from the crowd and have some time by themselves and behold a woman Canaanite woman is the description from that region came to him crying saying so let's stop there Canaanite woman now it's interesting, Matthew labels it Canaanite, Mark says Phoenician, but I think Matthew is, there's no contradiction there, we're not going to get into, oh no, it's, it, can, it can be re- reconciled to the same thing, but Matthew I think is labeling it Canaanite because he really wants to push the contrast from the previous section with the Pharisees. You have the Pharisees, the chosen people who all they want to do is say, oh my gosh, you didn't wash your hands. And then you ha- and these are the chosen people, the people who grew up studying the law. And by the way, if you were a Pharisee, you would have had the Old Testament memorized if you were an elite Pharisee. I'm talking in Hebrew, word for word. Would you be impressed by that? If I could recite the Old Testament to you from memory in Hebrew? You'd probably be like, that dude's got to be close to God. Well, not necessarily. That's what's crazy about religiosity, right? You can know all the religious texts and still be far from God. So that's the whole point you got the Pharisees, close to God, and then you've got a Canaanite. A Canaanite. These are the people that the Israelites were commanded to destroy when they entered the promised land. So that, just don't miss that. That's who this woman is. And she comes and she's crying out to him. Strong Greek word. She's crying out. She's not just submissively, humbly going, oh, can you please think about it? No, she's like, I need help crying out to him. And by the way, that's just an application point. Many times, and I'll I'll never stop saying this about abiding grace, you guys have some of the best elders for pastoral care around. But sometimes you need to get over your timidity and just ask for help. Amen? Because some of you aren't getting the help you need spiritually, pastorally, even maybe financially or whatever, because you're not asking for help. And men are the worst with that. I'm not going to ask you for no help. Like, I lost my job, and I got some help from Abiding Grace, but I didn't like him, actually, was the one who had to be like, we need money. I'm like, I don't need no money. You know? Anyway, I don't want to go, but that's... She's crying out. All right? And what does she say? Lord, Son of David. Now, where she has this knowledge, we do not know. How she is addressing Jesus... As a Canaanite woman with the title of Lord Son of David. Okay? Lord Son of David. The divine titles. Okay? Kurios, which is translated from the Hebrew Yahweh very consistently in the Septuagint version when they translated the Hebrew into the Greek, addressing him as Lord. And then, of course, Son of David, the messianic title. And what does she say? Oh wait, I missed an entire important word. She first asks for what? Mercy. Well, that was a big oversight on my part. The, her first stance before she even addresses him is, Lord, I need mercy. Right? And what does mercy mean? Remember, grace is being given a gift that you do not deserve. Mercy is having something withheld from you that you do deserve. Namely, the judgment of God. So when you ask God for mercy, you're asking him to withhold his hand of judgment, which you rightly deserve. So what's this woman recognizing? Right off the bat. She deserves God's wrath. She is a Canaanite. She is unclean. She lives in a pagan land. She is not from the people of Israel. She is unclean. She recognizes that. Okay? Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David, my daughter, and the Greek word, I mean, there's a helping word here for the demon, she's demon possessed, but she's terribly demon possessed. Awfully demon possessed. This demon possession is a very bad demon possession. So it's, real, it's a really bad issue that she's having with her daughter. Now, what does Jesus do? Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. Cold shoulder. Ignored you. Pastor Mike, Pastor Mike. Hey, can we talk real quick? I got an issue. And he just looks at you and walks away. I know Pastor Mike would never do that. (laughs) But maybe he should start doing that because Jesus did it. I'm just being like Jesus now. I'm not advising that. But it is interesting, right? Don't miss this. Like Jesus just does not even answer her. He does not even say anything to her. And here's what's interesting. If you would have just, you know, you had a 10-hour walk with Jesus. So, you know, it happened a little while ago. But you probably still would have remembered that the Pharisees asked Jesus a question. and Did he give them the cold shoulder? No. He answered their question. So it's like, wow. So when it comes to these Canaanites, Jesus really isn't about them. So he answers. So he just ignores her. Next part. Then apparently she starts bugging the disciples. So she's she's not done. So Jesus says. So and then the disciples look what they say. Okay. And they kept asking. That's why you know Steve. It's the translation you read. It's it's a it's a aorist. It's a it's a. It's a or imperfect. It's an undefined it's happening over and, over and over and over and over and over again. They kept asking Jesus, send her away. Get her out of here. By the way, the same. The disciples seem to have an issue with this. It's the same thing they did when the crowd of 5,000 was there. Same Greek word. Jesus, can you send these people away? And I have an application for that in a moment. So send them away because she's asking after us and it's in, the, it's in the imperfect over and over and over again. She keeps asking us over and over. She's bugging us. And look at Jesus' answer here. And Jesus answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now if you're one of the disciples, you're like, oh wow. So the reason he's not saying anything to her is because she's not Jewish. Hmm. Well, wow. so Jesus has the same opinion as the Pharisees, right? He's he's very exclusive, it's about the Jews, salvation only. There are cult groups like the black Hebrew Israelites, they will quote this verse 50 million times out of context and say he was only sent. To the Lord. And they have this whole weird theology. But Jesus is doing something to demonstrate a point. Okay? Yes, Paul says this, doesn't he, in Romans? to the Jew first, and also the Greek. And we see that in the book of Acts, that where did the apostle Paul and Peter go first when they went into a town? To the Jew first. But then eventually, Paul dusted his feet off completely and said, I go off to the Gentiles, and that almost got him ripped to shreds if the Roman government didn't save him. But I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus is Jewish. He came for the Jewish people. Well, let's see what he's going to do with that. Because Obviously, the woman had to to hear him say this. She heard him say, well, I'm only going to the house of Israel. And she comes back. Interesting, the word proskuneo is used there. Remember I emphasized that earlier? That he proskuneoed Peter and the disciples when he got in the boat. So it's a a stronger word. It's not just bowing down. I mean, it's usually translated bowing down. It depends on the context. But she's she's getting more desperate. She's bowing down on her face, probably, right in front, like blocking his path, saying, Lord, help me. Now, at this point, Jesus has to give her something, right? I mean, it's got to the point where it's like, Jesus, help this lady. And look what he says next. And he answered and said to her, it is not good to take the bread of the children, the children's bread, and cast it, strong Greek word, not just give it. Like, when I feed my dog, I just throw them. the now Kim hand-feeds them because they're her little babies and stuff, but I just throw the food on the ground, right? And does the dog care if the food's on the ground? Does the dog have the scruples like, oh, how dare you throw my food on the ground? Okay, that dog back there I think is like that, but he might be offended. But it's not right to take the bread that belongs to the children. Now, right away, what should this invoke? At least the previous story. The Jews are talking about washing, eating bread with unwashed hands. He's saying, yeah, we were talking about bread earlier, remember? That bread we were talking about that is being eaten by the covenant people. It's not right to take that bread and throw it to the dogs. To the dogs. Now, at this point, she should just be like, I'm done. And this is what I expected. I mean, this woman probably, it's, it's likely that she, because she knew, I mean, it's, it's possible that it was just a totally supernatural revelation that she knew to call him Lord, Son of David. But it's more likely that she had some contact with, with Jewish culture. And she would have known that that's what the Jews thought about the Canaanites instead of being offended and saying "Oh, this is great, look what she does she says yes Lord yes Lord let's just, let's just stop right there yes Lord I am a dog yes Lord it's not right for you to give me any of the children's bread you're right you didn't come from me salvation belongs to the Jews as Jesus says in John. He, you came for Abraham and his children. But, she has a pretty big butt there. Yes, Lord, but the dogs eat from the crumbs falling from the table of the master. Even the dogs get a crumb from the table of the master. That is her response. Jesus, I know I'm not entitled to the bread. It belongs to the children, but can I have a crumb? Can I have at least a crumb? And what does Jesus say? Jesus answered saying to her, O woman, Megale, so right into English, mega, something's mega, it's big. Right? Great is your faith. And what's this supposed to be contrasted with, as I said earlier, Peter's faith. Oh, you of little faith. So what's the contrast here? What is Jesus called great faith? I mean, you, just think about it for a second. Jesus is standing here, and you crawl up to him and say, Jesus, I deserve nothing from you. I'm a dog. I'm unworthy. I'm unclean. And Jesus says, That is great faith. Do we think that way? Do we really think that way? The word faith, people definitely don't think that way. The, the majority of evangelical churches, no, no, you should never have a negative self-image like that. How's that, great faith? Jesus just labeled great faith, saying, I'm a dog, I'm unworthy, give me a crumb. It's unbelievable. And Jesus, with his response, O oh woman, great is your faith, be it done to you as you desire. And at that very hour, her daughter was healed. So what do we have coming out of the mouth of the woman that makes her clean? And what do we have coming out of the mouth of the Pharisees that makes them unclean? Remember, what was coming out of the mouth of the Pharisees? What was coming out of the mouth of the Pharisees is, Jesus, you can do all these miracles and you can have all this great power and you can have all this great teaching, but if you're breaking some traditions that we hold, we're going to reject you. And by the way, what was the Pharisee? Matthew specifically notes this later in the Gospel. The Pharisees' problem was they rejected the baptism of John. And in rejecting the baptism of John, they refused to admit that they were sinners worthy of the wrath of God. That was the whole point of John's baptism. You go down to John in the Jordan River, and what you're saying to John is, John, John's preaching this apocalyptic fire's about to rain down, the Lord's about to come, and you say, well, I deserve that fire, what do I do? You repent. It's a baptism of repentance. But the Pharisees said, nope. And then Jesus said one of the most provocative things ever in that section of Matthew. He says, the prostitutes are entering the kingdom before you. said that right to the Pharisees. But what is the... So what's coming out of their mouth? This is what we do. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what we do. We focus on outward things. We compare ourselves to others. We watch daytime television. We watch Maury and see the poor girl who's had five baby daddies and she can't figure out who the baby daddy is and uh, getting the paternity test and you are not the father. You ever seen that? And go goes, and we just sit at home and go, they some not like her. They some not like her. They some not like him. I mean, our media and our cultures give us a steady dish that we can feast on every day to compare ourselves to others outwardly to convince ourselves that we're righteous. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. This woman had no ability to have that to hide behind, did she? She's a Canaanite in a pagan land. And that's why what comes out of her mouth, which is just a simple confession of, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a dog. I deserve nothing. I am unclean. Please give me a crumb. Great faith. Clean. Because what did she recognize? What Jesus just taught. It was what was coming out of her heart that made her unclean. And she recognized it. Now, now I, want, I want to step back to the mountain range thing and see the larger picture. So also, Jesus mentioning bread. We should, go, we should zoom back to the feeding of the 5,000. Okay? And we're going to have another feeding. Next. I think it's next. I think there's one more little section and then it's the feeding of the 4,000. So we're going to have another feeding of bread and Jesus is going to make it and I'd be interested whoever's doing that if you can discern what Jesus means by the, you know, there was 12 12 and 12 and then 7 turned to 12 and what's the significance of that? Because the commentators are very all over the place on what, what Jesus is doing there. But you have more feeding of bread. Okay. And then you have the demand for a sign and the yeast of the Pharisees. This is all coming up, preview of what's to come. Okay, but all of this is sandwiched uh, (pun intended) among Peter's little faith and this woman's great faith. Like it's it's all because what we're driving to next is Peter is about to make a confession of faith the greatest confession of faith that maybe has ever been made especially during the time of the ministry of Jesus he's going to say you are the Messiah the son of the living God but then what you will see very quickly is Peter does not even know what the heck he's saying because then Jesus says the son of Man's going to go suffer and then Peter rebukes him and what we're we're meant to see is that this Canaanite woman has more faith than Peter and this Canaanite woman, and why does she have more faith than Peter? Because she's broken. And by the way, when does Peter's faith actually become a genuine, strong faith? When he's what? Broken. And actually, I found another connection to the wheat and the bread stuff. Jesus says to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. And does Satan actually, and I, I always read that text like the. Satan maybe wasn't successful in sifting Peter like wheat because Jesus prayed for him. I don't think that's what the text means anymore. I think Satan was successful in sifting Peter like wheat. But what happened was that got rid of all the tares and all of the... What's it called? Why am I forgetting the word? The, the, the chaff. Thank you. The chaff was cleared away in Peter's heart by Satan because he fell into the temptation of denying Christ. So that's going to happen to Peter. And then, of course, we have the Pharisees in the previous section. Don't want to miss this. They're sitting there eating bread with their washed hands like they're superior to everybody else. Beloved, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's not act like we're superior because we come to church. Let's not act like we're superior because we read our Bibles and pray. Let's not walk around with a superiority complex. Okay, That's what turns unbelievers off from Christians. Rightly so, Maybe not always rightly so. The unbelievers overplay that card way too often, all you, all you hypocrites. But we do give them examples of it, and we want We want when they think of the Christians they know, like your coworkers, people that know you, and they know you're Christians. You want them to be like, yeah, he's a, he's a they're, they're nice people. Like they're not always talking about Fox News and Donald Trump. And I'm sorry, I didn't. Did, did I say that? I didn't mean to. say that. Now. And most importantly, this is important, the, the Pharisees are looking down on the bread of life himself. Let's not miss the bread. The whole bread thing, John is very, that's where you got to read John. John is very much clearer than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When this, all this stuff about bread is about Christ, he is the bread. And check this out. And why do they look down on the bread of life in their midst and have no hunger for him? It's because they're satisfied with their own religious traditions. They don't see their simple heart as a problem. And then we look at this woman who's an unclean pagan Gentile, not looking down on anyone. Jesus putting her to the test and showing how she is being exactly the opposite of the Pharisees and the disciples. She's humble. She recognizes her need for mercy, recognizes she's unworthy to eat even the crumbs of bread that fall from the master's table. And ultimately, catch this, the one she's pleading with is going to be the children's bread. That's who he is. He's the children's bread. What's going to happen to him? He's going to be tossed to the dogs. The religious leaders are going to have him crucified. He is the bread of life that's going to be tossed out. He's going to be tossed out to the dogs, to the Romans. But this tossing out of the Son of God will result in the crumbs of eternal life falling from the table of the Master. If, and we will enjoy those crumbs if our faith is like that woman's. <clears throat> now we have a prayer that Pastor Steve is going to, it's, it's in your bulletin. I don't know if you noticed it. You might have been like, what the heck is that thing in the middle of the bulletin? It doesn't seem like a worship song. This is, and and it's called The Prayer of Humble Access. It's from the Anglican prayer book. It was written by Thomas Cramner in 1548. And it's incorporating phrases from the Liturgy of St. Basil, two Gregorian collects, John 6.56, our current text, and some of the writings of Thomas Aquinas. But uh, Cramner was a genius in putting together and compiling. And by the way, the prayer book, it was a revolutionary idea because before the Reformation, people didn't have instruction on how to pray or read the Bible in their own home. That's what the prayer book did for them. They could take a book home and actually teach their family to pray. It was just unheard of before the Reformation. It's crazy. And we'll read it, but I just want to hit on it. Look at You'll just see where it starts. You'll see why I put this prayer in here. So in the Anglican tradition, still if you went to an Anglican church... Before you go up to communion to take it, you would pray this prayer together. And we're going to do that in a moment. We do not presume to come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. Okay, and don't get hung up. Well, this is a written out prayer, isn't that? Listen. Listen. Even if you don't want to pray this prayer and you're, you know, uncomfortable with that, it's a matter of conscience. Some people don't like the written out prayers. But at least, you see, this is praying scripture. You're you're putting the, the words of this woman into your own mouth saying, I'm not worthy to even gather up crumbs under your table. Okay. Now I have a couple application points and I'm done. What does this story tell us about modern psychology In its concept of having a healthy self-esteem. Okay, so I did a Google search, right? This is the Google search. How to have better self-esteem. Just type that right in the search bar, right? Now, after I got all the sponsored results, you know what those are? Like it says sponsored. People are paying Google tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars to have their result come up first. That's how they make all their money. You want, your, you want to be that spot, you pay, you're paying. So after I got through those, there was like four or five, I got to the ones that aren't sponsored. right? And if, you, if anyone does Google searches a lot, Google has this feature now where it will just extract something from a website that it thinks is answering your questions, it's like an AI thing, and it'll give you, this one gave me a list of six things. Okay, and I added a seventh. So here's the six things you should do to have better self-esteem. Number one, get to know yourself. Now, any of my Calvinists in the room who know John Calvin, right? <laughs> That's the book of Institutes, chapter 1, section 1. And Calvin actually says, to know God, you need to know yourself. Now, would, would, would they be down with Calvin? <laughs> After they read about three paragraphs in, the modern psychologist, they would throw him in the trash bin and be like, what are you talking about? Because Calvin's point is you need to know how God is holy and he is majestic and you are fallen and a creature who is, a, who is made... Anyway. But that's, that one's okay. Two, try to challenge unkind thoughts about yourself. Okay, now. Are there people who, for whatever reason, because of their upbringing or things that were said to them as a child, they have a very... They, they, they just have negative self-talk all the time and they need to have that addressed, like in a counseling situation? Sure. I'm not going to deny that. But I don't think that's the majority of people's problem. I think the problem is we are so prideful and think we deserve so much that we get upset and we get depressed and anxious because we're not getting what we think we should have. So this antidote that Jesus gives is, no, having some unkind thoughts about yourself might actually be helpful. It might actually help for you to go, you know what? I don't deserve that thing that I'm so depressed that I didn't get. Because maybe I'm a sinner and I deserve nothing from the hand of God. Number three, say positive things to yourself. Say positive things to yourself. Get a post-it note, pad, write on with marker, I am worth it, I am great. Put it on your bathroom mirror so every time you wake up, you get, that doesn't work. I mean, it just doesn't, it it just doesn't. Joel Osteen will tell you it works, but... It doesn't work. Okay. Practice saying no. That's actually a good one. Some of you have low self-esteem because you're walked on by other people, and you never say no. That that actually can be a true thing. So this is I'm not. common grace, right? There's some there's some stuff in Google. Try to avoid comparing yourself with others. That's actually a good one. Many times. We have all kinds of problems with our own self-esteem because we never grew out. Because that's adolescence, right? That's t- typical. Like you're in. That's, this is why the experiment of taking thousands of children and placing them in the same building and calling it public school with just a couple adults to guide them is a really bad idea. Because all the kids just have this horrible social situation where they're just nasty to each other. And if you're not in the in crowd, then you're just garbage. And then with social media amplifying that, oh my gosh. In my day, when you left school, you could get away from the bullying. Now it's just... And I'm telling you, the kids, get off of Instagram and you'll stop feeling bad. No. <laughs> like, get off of the Snapchat and you'll stop seeing your friends bully you and they won't get off Snapchat. Anyway. Do something nice for yourself. Yeah. Okay. And then number seven. When Jesus Christ calls you an unworthy dog, agree with him. No, that wasn't in the Google search, but I added that. <laughs> I added that one. Because that's what we're looking at in this text. This woman was commended having great faith, and I'm not seeing that she had some healthy self-concept. Unless a healthy self-concept, biblically, is actually realizing your sin. Now I want to show you that. I want to let's go through this really quick. I'm almost done. What were the biblical characters' views of themselves? It's in the same vein. What's a healthy self-concept? Abraham. So I'll give you the, the, the verses. You can jot them down if you're taking notes. Genesis 18, 27. Abraham is pleading for mercy because God's angels are about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knows his nephew Lot is there. And he knows that this fire is deservedly raining down. But he's pleading for the life of his his nephew. Look what he says. Abraham spoke up again to the Lord, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. So Abraham, the great patriarch, what's his view of himself? He's what? Dust and ashes. Next, Job 40, verse 4 and 42, 6. Job 40, verse 4 and 42, 6. Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy, NIV. Vile, King James Version. Completely unworthy, New English Translation. How can I reply to you? I keep my hand over my mouth. The righteous Job, by the way. That's the whole contrast you're supposed to see in the book of Job. God even calls him righteous at the beginning. And he's a righteous man. But what does he say by the end? I am vile. I am unworthy. And then 42.6 at the very end, what does Job say about himself? I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Next we have Isaiah 6.5. When Isaiah experiences the presence of God, what does he say about himself? Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What was Isaiah's self-concept? Same as this woman. She enters the pres- he enters the presence of God, he is unclean. Now, interesting, Luke 5.8, Peter, early in Luke, it's interesting to figure out why Luke notes that toward the beginning of his gospel, because Peter isn't putting a very flattering light in the other, he's usually toward the end. So this is when Peter, Jesus gets into Peter's boat and he says, cast that over there and you get a huge haul of fish, right? And it happens. And this massive haul of fish and the boats are sinking. And Peter, when he saw this massive catch of fish, he did what? He fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Application point. When God blesses your life, you know how you know you're in a healthy spiritual place? It should humble you and remind you how much you don't deserve it. If you get a good job, if you get a raise, if you get a house, if things are working out in your favor, in prosperity. I mean, you know how much money that they could have made right then, taking those fish to market? Like they got several boats full of fish? And instead of going, oh wow, look at all this money. I am unworthy of these blessings. We need to pray that God does that for us. Because that's the most dangerous thing spiritually about living in America. Is we are so prosperous and we forget how we don't deserve any of this that God has given us. And then we have Paul, the great Apostle Paul, who had the lowest self-concept of all the Apostles. And it's 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 great that he wrote this in his letters that we have it. 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says, For I am the least of the Apostles and do not even deserve to be called an Apostle because I persecuted the Church of God. Paul, receive the forgiveness of the Lord, brother. It's as far as the east is from the west. Why are you bringing it up again? Paul would look at you. What are you talking about? I'm broken by that. I'll never get over that. Yes, I. Of course, Paul received forgiveness for it. But when he looks at his current state and what he does as a leader, what does he say to people? I'm unworthy. I'm the last person that should be an apostle. Ephesians 3.8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me. Paul again. He's the least of all God's people. 2 Corinthians 12.11. I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. I love that. We don't got time to get into the whole what's going on with the super apostles and I'm sure years from now, Mike will tackle that when he goes through 2 Corinthians. Now, 1, Corinthians 1, or 1 Timothy 1.15, one of my favorite verses of the entire Bible, I have to say. Paul says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I was the worst. Oh, I misquoted it. Does he say I was the worst? No, it's a present tense verb. I am the worst. And remember, the letters to Timothy were written, written when? At the end of Paul's life. This is the mature apostle writing. And he's saying what to Timothy? I am the worst, the chief, the foremost, the protos, the the, the first in the Greek, the first sinner. Oh, geez. Sorry, I'm, I'm rusty with my preaching side. The time, okay, I have to read these though, if you'll, if you'll, if you'll. Jonathan Edwards. I want to give you two examples of men of God giving their own self-concept. This is Jonathan Edwards. If you're not familiar with Jonathan Edwards, Google him later. Okay? Called by some the most brilliant American theologian ever. Okay? This is what he says about himself. Quote, Edwards, When I look into my heart and take a view of its wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. And it appears to me that were it not for free grace, exalted and raised up to the infinite heights of all the fullness of the glory and great of the great Jehovah, I should appear sunk down in my sins below hell itself, far below the sight of everything but the eye of sovereign grace. That alone can pierce down to such a depth. And it's affecting to think how ignorant I was when a young Christian of the bottomless depths of wickedness, pride, hypocrisy, and deceit left in my heart. That's Jonathan Edwards. And i got one more for you. The prince of preachers himself, Spurgeon. Okay, listen to Spurgeon. So, so see, having a negative view of yourself. Now you can say, well, that's just Jonathan Edwards. Well, he's a man, who, I don't care what he thinks. But these were, these were men of God. who were used by God mightily. And when you ask them about themselves and if they're good people, they're like, nope. Listen to Spurgeon. Quote, there are some professing Christians who can speak of themselves in terms of admiration. But from my inmost heart, I loathe such speeches more and more every day that I live. Those who talk in such a boastful fashion must be constituted very differently from me. Well, they are congratulating themselves, I have to lie humbly at the foot of Christ's cross and marvel that I am saved at all. For I know that I'm saved. I have to wonder that I do not believe Christ more and equally wonder that I am privileged to believe in him at all. To wonder that I do not love him more and equally to wonder why I love him at all to wonder why I am not holier and equally wonder that I have any desire to be holy at all. Listen to this, this is Spurgeon. Considering what a polluted, debased, depraved nature I find still within my soul, notwithstanding all that divine grace has done in me. Listen to this part. If God were ever to allow the fountains of the great deeps of depravity to break up in the best of man's life, he would make as bad as a devil as the devil himself. I care nothing for what these boasters say concerning their own perfections. I feel sure that they do not know themselves, or they cannot talk as often as they do. There is tinder enough in the saint who is nearest to heaven to kindle another hell if God should but permit a spark to fall upon it. In the very best of men, there is an infernal and well-nigh infinite depth of depravity. Some Christians never seem to find this out. I almost wish that they might not do so, for it is a painful discovery for anyone to make but it has the beneficial effect of making us cease from trusting in ourselves and in causing us to glory only in the Lord. Spurgeon. Two more applications. What's this encounter with the woman teaches about prayer? Can there be times when the Lord is not only seemingly silent when we pray to him, but may even remind us of our our unworthiness to even ask? When When you think about your prayer life, what does this teach us about prayer life? Um, and we drove past it to get here. Sam Shoemaker, who was an Episcopal priest at Calvary Episcopal Church in Shadyside, East Liberty Shadyside, right there. He was influential in the starting of the AA movement with Dr. Bob and Bill W., Sam Shoemaker. And he, I remember reading in a, in a book of his, he, he had an, an alcoholic come to him one time and, and say, Why doesn't God answer my prayers? And, you know, whether this is good pastoral advice in all situations, I'll let the elders here decide, but you know what he said back to them? Why should he answer your prayers? Explain to me why God should answer any of your prayers. What, what was he getting at? You don't deserve any of your prayers to be answered. If you don't recognize that, then you don't really have any power in prayer. You know where the real power in prayer comes? It's what the woman did. God, I deserve nothing but crumbs. That's where, If you pray like that, you'll find a new power, I promise you. And one more application. Does God always answer your prayers for guidance and give you direct confirmation of what to do? So, have any of you wondered about that? Like, God, should I take this job? God, should I do this? God, should I do that? And it doesn't seem like you have any guidance. Sometimes, God will not answer that prayer. Sometimes He will, sometimes He's gracious sometimes there'll be some confirmation in his province where you were praying God should I take this job and all of a sudden these circumstances unfold where it's like undeniable that like wow I can't believe that just happened last week and I prayed for God to give me a sign on what I should do but sometimes he won't and why does he not a lot of the times because he wants you to press into your faith in his promises and just trust him now what do you always have to run your decisions through The Ten Commandments, what's called the preceptive will of God. You always have to ask yourself, is this decision I'm about to make sinful? Is it part of my flesh? Is it something to do with greed or something to do with, you know, something that uh, anger or fear? Okay? But once you've run it through that grid and it's a decision that's not sinful, but you don't know if it's God's will for you or not, you know what God wants you to do? Make the decision and walk by faith like Abraham did. He may decide to rebuff you multiple times like the woman. But guess what's going to happen? When he does show his presence of favor in your life, what's going to happen? It's going to be well worth it. When he says to you, be it done as you desire, your desires in the waiting for God to answer the prayer will have been transformed. And then you might even, looking back, not even asked God for what you asked him for because he just changed your desires. So what have we learned this morning? And as we take communion, I'm going to pray, and then the elders are going to take over. But I just want us to approach communion today with this text in mind, which we're going to do with the help of the prayer we're going to pray. But then when we approach Christ, we approach Him as this woman. We are unworthy, and we are getting crumbs that are falling from the Master's table. Now, one crumb from Jesus is worth a million things that the world could give us. The salvation that he gives us, his righteousness he clothes us with, he takes the judgment we deserve on that cross, more valuable than anything the world can give us. All the bread that the world offers to satisfy us. Christ, a crumb from his table, satisfies us more than that. So let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this word, Lord, and I pray as we continue this journey through the Gospel of Matthew, we would be as your disciples, and we would, at the end, come to this confession of who you are, And we would be broken by our sin, trusting in you, understanding what your kingdom truly is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.